So hello there and welcome to the fifth lecture in contract law. So in today's lecture we're going to start talking about the rules in relation to the acceptance of an offer in contract law. And as I mentioned at the end of the previous lecture you've got to look on acceptance as the flip side of offer. So I started this whole sequence of lectures by suggesting that agreement is the foundation of contract law and in law agreement is defined as offer and acceptance. Somebody makes an offer expressing a willingness to be bound on certain terms and conditions and another person responds by accepting that offer. And when you have both of those things you have an agreement that is recognized as potentially legally binding. Again remember in the basic rule of contract law there are additional conditions that need to be satisfied in order for an agreement to count as a contract but we'll get to those in due course. So in this lecture, I just want to introduce the rule in relation to acceptance and then discuss five qualifications or issues that you need to bear in mind when thinking about what counts as an acceptance or doesn't count as an acceptance in law. So to some extent, the structure of this lecture on acceptance mirrors the structure of the lectures on offer insofar as we introduce a rule and then discuss five qualifications or exceptions to that rule. That mirroring of structure is not intentional, just a coincidence. So let's start with the statement of the rules. So as I said, since acceptance is the flip side of offer, it stands to reason that the formulation of the acceptance rule should mirror very closely the offer rule. So the acceptance rule can be formulated as follows. In order for there to be a binding legal contract, there must be an acceptance where an acceptance is understood in law as a final and unqualified expression of assent to the terms of the offer. In other words, the acceptance should mirror the offer. And you actually sometimes see this referred to in the case law as the mirror image principle or rule that the acceptance should mirror the offer. So the general formulation of that rule should be straightforward enough. So imagine again, you are buying a car from a friend of yours, you go over to their house, you view the car, they tell you the price at which they're willing to sell it. You maybe negotiate and haggle for a few minutes, you finally agree on a price, so you offer to purchase the car for €1,200. Euro. They accept that, saying that they are willing to sell the car to you at €1,200. Euro. So you've made the offer stating your willingness to be bound to purchase the car at the price of €1,200, Euro, and they have mirrored that in their acceptance. They've stated that they are willing to accept your offer at 1200 euro. Now just one point I want to make clear here before we go on to discuss the qualifications to this rule is that when in law we say that an offer is a statement of a willingness to be bound on specific terms and conditions and an acceptance is an assent or agreement with those terms and conditions, I want to be clear about one thing which is that the parties to a contract do not have to finalize every particular or detail of the contract at the point of acceptance. They really just have to agree to the major points about the contract, which is usually the price, the timing, the nature and quality of the good or service that they are exchanging. Sometimes there are other terms and conditions in contracts, and we'll be discussing them later in the semester, that do not have to be precisely specified before an agreement comes into existence before a contract comes into existence. Okay, so with that clarification out of the way, let's move on then to discuss the five qualifications to this acceptance rule. And this will take up 
the remainder of this particular lecture. In the next lecture, we'll go into some more complications arising from the rules on offer and acceptance. So the first qualification to the acceptance rule is going to sound very straightforward, but it can lead to complications in practice, which is that the acceptance of an offer has to be communicated to the offeror. So as I say, this makes sense. Again, if you're purchasing that car from a friend of yours, it's no good communicating, or it's no good if your friend communicates the acceptance of the offer to his mother or something, because she's not the person who's offering to purchase the car. And there's actually a nice explanation of this idea or principle in an English case, the facts of which we will discuss at a later point in time. It's a case called Entores Limited versus Miles Far East Corporation from the 1950s. But I just want to quote a passage from the judgment in that case by Lord Justice Denning, which I think, as I say, is a nice illustration of this acceptance principle. And Lord Denning, who we're going to encounter multiple times in this course, was somewhat notorious for his tendency to play a bit fast and loose with the rules of contract law and seemingly overturn them in his judgments. And many of the, his judgments were subsequently overturned themselves and rejected by his peers. But he was quite good at presenting legal concepts using interesting stories or analogies that were easily accessible and understandable by the layperson. And actually, he saw that as one of his functions as a judge was to make it accessible to everybody. So in the midst of the judgment in this case, the Entores case, he tells a little story which is supposed to illustrate why the communication of acceptance is important. And here it is. Suppose, for instance, that I shout an offer to a man across a river or a courtyard, but I do not hear his reply because it is drowned by an aircraft flying overhead. There is no contract at that moment. If he wishes to make a contract, he must wait until the aircraft is gone and then shout back his acceptance so that I can hear what he says. Not until I have his answer am I bound. Now take the case where two people make a contract by telephone. Suppose, for instance, that I make an offer to a man by telephone and in the middle of his reply the line goes dead so that I do not hear his words of acceptance. There is no contract at that moment. So two nice, simple illustrations of the importance of communicating the acceptance of an offer to the offeror. And that'll make the rules about acceptance seem straightforward. But as we're about to see now, there are some complications here which make it much less straightforward than Denning's simple story might suggest. And some of you are probably going to struggle to wrap your head around some of these qualifications to the acceptance rule in practice. And the only thing I would say to you about this is remember what I said in the opening lecture. The law is not always consistent. It doesn't always make sense. Sometimes there are principles or rules or judgments that are arrived at for historical reasons or for accidental reasons. They linger in our jurisprudence in the common law system, and sometimes their inconsistencies are laid bare at a later point in time. And I think you'll probably encounter this phenomenon as I go through some of these cases now. Okay, so that's the first idea, that acceptance must be communicated to the offeror. The second qualification 
to the rule on acceptance that I want to mention is that silence is never good enough for acceptance, even when an offeror tries to make it good enough. So there's a very famous English case on this point called Felthaus v. Bindley from 1863. So the facts of the case are that Felthaus was negotiating to purchase a horse from his nephew. On the 2nd of January 1862, he sent a letter to the nephew offering to buy the horse for £30.15. shillings. The letter said explicitly, If I hear no more about him, I consider the horse to be mine at £30.15. shillings." The nephew never replied, and on the 25th of February, the horse was sold, seemingly mistakenly, at an auction to a third party. And so what happened here is that the uncle and the nephew seem to actually have thought that they had a contract, and there is evidence in the case suggesting that the nephew had said to the auctioneer that the horse had already been sold to his uncle. And this is despite the fact that the nephew had never communicated his acceptance of the uncle's offer to the uncle. Nevertheless, the horse was sold at auction, and the uncle then sued the auctioneer using something called the tort of conversion, which is a tortious rule that entitles you to reclaim property that is wrongfully taken from you. And we're actually going to be encountering the tort of conversion later in the semester anyway in another set of cases. So it's an important concept to have in mind. So technically this case is not about contract law directly. It's about the rules of tort law, but contract becomes relevant because you're only allowed to sue somebody in conversion if they have taken property from you that is rightfully yours. And so the uncle is only going to be able to sue the auctioneer in conversion if there was a valid contract between himself and the nephew for the sale of the horse, if the horse was legally the uncle's. Okay, so that's why contract is relevant to this case. Anyway, the outcome of the case, the uncle sues the auctioneer, saying that a valid contract had formed between himself and his nephew, and the court disagreed. The court said that the uncle cannot use silence as valid acceptance, or cannot claim that the nephew's silence is valid acceptance. And they say in the judgment that the uncle had no right to impose upon the nephew a sale of his horse for £30.15 shillings through silence. So I'm going to make more of this point later on. But just think about this for a moment, going back to this notion that agreement is the foundation of contract. Because again, on the face of it, it seems that the court is doing something here that is contrary to the intentions of the parties. So the uncle and the nephew seem to have thought that they did finalize a valid contract, even though the uncle had, in a sense, imposed the contract on the nephew by saying that silence was sufficient for acceptance. Nevertheless, the court have come along, again applying a kind of objective approach to interpretation, and saying, no, you, you can't impose a contract on somebody through silence. And maybe also there's a, a policy preference or policy rule coming in here, which you can't impose a legally binding contract on somebody through silence. And I'll come back to the policy rationale for this in a moment. But on the face of it, this is a conclusion, a judgment that doesn't seem to respect an agreement between the parties. The parties think they were in agreement, but the court says, no, you weren't in agreement. At least you weren't in agreement in the eyes of the law. So Feltaus v. Bindley is a famous English case. There's also some Irish case law on this point about silence and acceptance. 
One such case that's worth mentioning is Russell and Baird versus Hoban, which is a 1922 Irish case. So the facts of it are that Hoban, who were based in Castle Bar in County Mayo, negotiated with Russell and Baird to purchase some oatmeal. They requested a specific amount from Russell and Baird, and the sales manager with Russell and Baird sent back a note saying that they could supply the amount, and in this note it said, and I quote now, If this sale note be retained beyond three days after this date, it will be held to have been accepted by the buyer. Now, the sales note was retained for more than three days, so Russell and Baird tried to enforce a contract on Hoban. Hoban rejected this, and the court agreed with Hoban and rejected what Russell and Baird were arguing, and they said explicitly, no man can impose such conditions on another through silence. To put it another way, you cannot force somebody into a contract through inertia, through their failure to do something to communicate their acceptance. Now, there is, a, I think, a good policy rationale for this principle that silence cannot amount to acceptance or you cannot impose a contract on somebody through inertia, which is that there is a phenomenon known as inertia selling, or at least historically there used to be, whereby someone would sell unsolicited, sorry, somebody would post unsolicited goods to you and they would include with the postal note the specification or the term that if you didn't return the goods to them within a certain period of time, you are deemed to have purchased them in law, a valid contract has come into being. And this could be despite the fact that you didn't solicit the goods, you didn't ask for them to be sent to you. And, you know, our lives would be pretty tricky and I don't think it would be very desirable for us if contracts could be imposed upon us through inertia in this way. We might be getting unsolicited goods all the time and then we'd have companies trying to force the terms of unsolicited contracts on us all the time. So it's not surprising that the law has taken this perspective and saying that silence is not sufficient, even though on occasion, as it appeared to do in Feltos v. Bindley, this is contrary to what appears to be the agreement between the parties. And just a note here as well, this principle from case law against inertia selling has been incorporated into Irish statute law. So Section 47 of the Sale of Goods and Supply of Services Act of 1980 outlaws inertia selling. Okay, so that's the second qualification that I wanted to mention. The third thing I want to mention, kind of related to this, is that an offeror, the person who makes the offer in law, can prescribe a preferred method of communication on the offeree. So they can make an offer to them and say, I want you to communicate your acceptance in a particular format and at a particular time. However, there are some limits to how prescriptive somebody can be when imposing or suggesting a certain method of communication on the offeree. So let's run through some cases on this, and we're going to range from some very old cases to some slightly more modern cases. So one of the oldest cases that's widely discussed in relation to this is an American case called Eliasson v. Henshaw. It's from 1819, and this involves the sending of letters of acceptance via wagon. So this is back before there were trains uh, when the postal service used horse and trap to deliver the mail. And as you can imagine, that's a pretty slow and inefficient way of communicating. So it would take days, sometimes weeks, for mail to be delivered, particularly in the US, which is obviously a very large country with lots of rural areas that are difficult to reach, particularly back in the early 1800s. 
So the facts of the case are that Eliasson wanted to buy some flour, and he sent a letter to Henshaw saying, please write by return of postal wagon whether you accept our offer to purchase the flour. So Henshaw wants to write the acceptance, but the postal wagon was not returning immediately to a place called Harper's Ferry, which is where Eliasson was based. So Henshaw decided to send a letter to another address owned by Eliasson in Georgetown in Washington, and that letter was delivered 11 days later, that letter of acceptance. Now, Eliasson acknowledged receipt of the letter eventually, but said it was no good and that the offer had been revoked because it had not been communicated back to them in the preferred manner, that they hadn't responded by return of the postal wagon. So there are a lot of things going on in this case, by the way. So it's not just that they didn't respond by the return of the postal wagon, they also sent the response letter to a different address, and so it took further time to get to Eliasson at the proper address. Nevertheless, in the case, the conclusion was that Eliasson was within his rights to prescribe a preferred method of acceptance on Henshaw, that if he wanted the acceptance to be communicated by return of the postal wagon, he was entitled to do so. Now, what happens if the offeror doesn't actually prescribe a method of acceptance? They don't state that they have a preferred method of acceptance. Well, there's an English case that discusses this point, Tin v. Hoffman, 1873 case. So here we have Hoffman, who offered to sell iron to tin at a particular price, and the offer is sent by post, and Hoffman then asked tin to reply by return post. However... Looking at the facts of the case, the judge who decided it, Honeyman J, suggested that the wording of this offer was such that it did not mean, and I'm quoting here from the judgment, exclusively a reply by letter or by return of post, but you may also reply by telegram or by verbal message or by any means not later than a letter and sent by return of post. So to translate that into slightly more efficient, ordinary language, This judgment seems to be precedent for the idea that if there isn't a really tightly prescribed preferred method of communication, any equally expeditious method of communication will suffice for acceptance in the eyes of the law. So if Hoffman said, please respond by return post, but isn't really particular about preferring communications via post, then the court will say, well, anything that is as fast as post will do, or faster. So anything that's equally expeditious or perhaps even more expeditious will suffice. The only thing that you couldn't do is use a less efficient or expeditious form of communication. Now, this idea has led to some complications and confusions in later case law. So there's another English case from the 1970s. We're fast-forwarding in time quite a bit now called Manchester Diocesan Council Education versus Commercial and General Investments. So in this case, the Manchester Diocesan Council were trying to tender to sell a property that they owned. They were looking for tenders. And remember, we discussed tenders in the previous lecture. So it's worth going back to that lecture and remembering and going over the rules on tenders just to understand this case. So Commercial and General Investments submitted the best offer by tender, 
And commercial, commercial and general investments asked for the acceptance of their tender, if it was going to be accepted, to be sent by letter to a specific address given in their tender. Now, Manchester Diocesan Council ended up sending a letter of acceptance to commercial and general investments solicitor. And they were made aware of the acceptance, but they then tried to get out of the deal, arguing that Manchester Diocesan Council had not accepted their tender in their prescribed or preferred format. So the issue here is whether sending the letter to the solicitor and not in the prescribed format was a valid acceptance. And in the judgment, Buckley, J, said that where the offeror has prescribed a particular method of acceptance, but not in terms insisting that only acceptance in that mode shall be binding, I am of the opinion that acceptance communicated to the offeror by any other mode which is no less advantageous to him will conclude the contract. So that appears to be a further judicial endorsement of this equally expeditious principle or idea. So just a couple of Irish cases to wrap up here on this point about the equally expeditious mode of communication. So there's an Irish case from the 1980s, Staunton versus the Minister for Health, where the offeror asked for a signature on a document as the way of expressing acceptance of an offer. But the court in that case found that an immediate verbal expression of assent or acceptance was sufficient. Again, seems to be on the grounds that this is equally expeditious. The offeror is not left any worse off by this method of communication. And then there's the, a Northern Irish case called Walker v. Glass. It's from 1979, where the facts don't particularly matter, but the judgment in the case, Lord Justice Lowry says that what matters is whether the method of communication used by the offeree is as beneficial to the offeror as the preferred or prescribed method. So just to conclude on this idea of preferred methods of communication, my reading of this is that the rule is following basically the judgment of Buckley in the Manchester Diocesan Council case, unless you are very prescriptive and very precise about saying that you will only accept communications in a very specific mode or format, any method of communication that is as beneficial to you as your preferred or prescribed method will be valid in the eyes of the law. Okay, so let's move on then to the fourth qualification of the acceptance rule. And this one is a little bit tricky in that it might seem to contradict one of the things that we said earlier on, which is that silence cannot amount to acceptance. Because one qualification to that idea is that courts have sometimes held that acceptance can be communicated via conduct. So the leading case on this is a case called Brogdon versus the Metropolitan Railway Company. It's an 1877 English case. The facts of it are as follows. So Brogdon used to supply the Metropolitan Railway Company with coals under an informal arrangement, so an unwritten contract or deal. It was suggested that a formal contract for the supply of coals should be drafted and signed. And so an official from the Metropolitan Railway Company drafted a formal contract, sent it out to Brogdon. Brogdon adjusted some of the terms and conditions in this contract, sent it back to the Metropolitan Railway Company. 
This formal contract was then filed away in a desk at the Metropolitan Railway Company, and no formal acceptance of that contract was communicated back to Brogdon. Nevertheless, Brogdon proceeded to supply coal to the Metropolitan Railway Company on his preferred terms and conditions for several months. Then a dispute arose between himself and the railway company, and he tried to back out of the supply deal that he had with them by arguing that there was no binding legal contract because the acceptance of his offer, his contract, his adjustment to the formal contract, had never been communicated to him. And so, you know, you might say following Feltas v. Bindley that he has a good case here because there was silence on the part of the Metropolitan Railway Company, but the court disagree with Brogdon in this case. So this is another instance where I want to actually read directly from the judgment itself to explain the principle or idea. So Lord Justice Blackburn, who we have encountered before, if you remember, he was the person whose statement about the agreement rule we used in the Smith v. Hughes case. He says in Brogdon that I have always believed the law to be this, that when an offer is made to another party, and in that offer there is a request express or implied that he must signify his acceptance by doing some particular thing, then as soon as he does that thing, he is bound. If a man sent an offer abroad saying, I wish to know whether you will supply me with goods at such and such a price, and if you agree to that, you must ship the first cargo as soon as you get this letter, there can be no doubt that as soon as the cargo was shipped, the contract would be complete. If the parties have, by their conduct, said that they act upon the draft which has been approved of by Mr. Brogdon, and which, if not quite approved of by the railway company, has been exceedingly near it, if they indicate by their conduct that they accept it, the contract is binding. So what Lord Justice Blackburn is saying here is the fact that Brogdon supplied the coals to the Metropolitan Railway Company, and the fact that they accepted all of those deliveries of coal, suggests that a contract has been finalised between them, and their acceptance of the terms of the contract have been communicated through their conduct, namely their willingness to accept the delivery of the coals. Now, how can we reconcile this judgment with the Feltos v. Bindley case? And I think the way to reconcile it is that this isn't like an inertia selling type of case. The problem that the courts are trying to avoid in a Feltos v. Bindley scenario is somebody imposing a contract on you through omission, through your failure to do something. In Brogdon versus Metropolitan Railway Company, there isn't an omission. The Metropolitan Railway Company have repeatedly accepted delivery of Brogdon's goods. So they have committed an act, an act of acceptance and going along with the terms of Brogdon's deal. So this is not a problem of omission. There's a clear commission here. And so you're not running into this kind of imposition of a contract on the basis of inertia. At least that's, I think, the way to reconcile those two cases. Okay, so very important idea that you can communicate through actions. And again, we're actually going to encounter this notion later in the semester when we discuss, actually, sorry, later in the year when we discuss other rules of contract law, that you don't just communicate things through speech or through the written word, you can sometimes communicate things through your actions. 
Right, so the final qualification of the acceptance rule is that communication may not actually be necessary in some cases, it's communication of acceptance, specifically in the case of unilateral contracts. So this is actually an idea that was implicit in the judgment of Carlyle versus Carbolic Smokeball, which we discussed previously. And I just want to go back to that case and draw out this idea from the judgment. So in that case, one of the arguments that the Carbolic Smokeball company made to claim that their ad was not a unilateral offer and they couldn't be bound simply because Mrs. Carlyle had followed the instructions on the product and still got ill was that she hadn't communicated the acceptance of the offer in the ad to them. So what they said was that there was no notification of the acceptance of the contract. And that argument was rejected in the judgment by Lord Justice Bowen. And again, I want to quote from his judgment on this. So what he said was, One cannot doubt as an ordinary rule of law that the acceptance of an offer ought to be notified to the person who makes the offer in order that the two minds may come together. But as notification of acceptance is required for the benefit of the person who makes the offer, the person who makes the offer may dispense with notice to himself if he thinks it is desirable to do so. So what's he saying there? What he's saying is that we require a communication of acceptance to benefit the person making the offer. Right? So the, the notification of acceptance as a rule of contract law is designed to benefit the offeror so that they know that their offer has been accepted and that they are now in a binding legal contract. But since the rule is in place, the rationale, the policy principle underlying the rule is to benefit the offeror, the offeror may waive their right to communication of acceptance if they think it is wise to do so. And so the claim is that through their advert and through their promotional scheme and through their confidence in their product signaled by the fact that they had offered this reward and deposited money in a bank in support of payments of this reward, Bowen is claiming that the Carbolic Smokeball Company must have thought it was okay or desirable to make this unilateral offer to the world. And so they were waiving their right to the communication of the acceptance of that offer as a result. So again, an important principle here that the offeror can waive their right to the communication of acceptance under certain circumstances. Okay, that is where we're going to leave it today. Just to briefly recap at the end, the acceptance rule in contract law is the flip side of the offer rule. It is a statement by the offeree of their willingness to be bound by the terms of the offer. And it's a kind of unqualified assent to the terms of the offer. And we have now discussed five qualifications to that rule, namely that acceptance must be communicated to the offeror ordinarily. Acceptance cannot be inferred through silence. You cannot impose a contract on somebody through inertia. An offeror may prescribe a preferred mode of communication, but then bear in mind that unless they're very precise about it, they'll fall foul of this equally expeditious principle. Although you cannot communicate acceptance through silence, you can communicate acceptance through conduct. That's the, the fourth qualification. 
And then finally, as we just saw, an offeror can waive his or her right to the communication of acceptance in the case of a unilateral contract. 